You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. My co-host today is Danielle Shockey, who's the CEO of Girl Scouts. Thank you, Danielle, for being here with me. Thrilled to be here. Our guest today is the incomparable, absolutely, without a doubt, most admired person I've ever met. And if you've listened to any of these podcasts, you will know how many times uh, she gets referenced, and that's Allison Melanchthon, former CEO of the Super Bowl committee and we're going to talk about that and she's also senior vice president of Holman Motorsports. Thank you Allison for being here. Well, you're welcome. I'm excited to be here. You you have been mentioned by several of the guests so far. As a matter of fact, I think when uh Sherry uh, Seiwert was on from Downtown Indy, we kind of went on and on. Yeah. Uh and everything I said is true. I I can say that I've never met anyone in my adult life who is more highly respected and who's accomplished so much. And that's a compliment from everybody I know who knows you. And thank you very much for being here today. Well, you're welcome. Happy to be here. I feel, I feel very flattered. <laughs> <laughs> uh, instead of me starting the questions this time, I think I'm going to defer to Danielle and we're going to talk about Allison's career. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about the Super Bowl because a lot of people have mentioned that and how proud Indianapolis remains mm-hmm. of having uh, done that. And then we'll talk a little bit about the 500 and and what's happening with that as we get closer to May. Danielle, go ahead. Okay. So thinking about, you know, it's referenced often that you led the Super Bowl committee and you were one of, correct me if I'm wrong, two women to ever do so. At the time, I was the second in 46 Super Bowls. There's been a couple other women since then. Okay. So at that time, successful one of two. Yes. Do you think by being a woman, it brought anything uniquely different because of because of your perspective mm-hmm. that ultimately made it a successful bid. You know, um, I actually get asked that a lot. You know, do you think being a woman made you think differently about how you led that? And and I I think sometimes yes because I, I I didn't look at it from a football perspective. I almost turned the model upside down and said I know that football is the reason that we're all here, but if we if we keep going out in the circles, I want to make sure that we're we're thinking about legacy, that we're making sure it's not just about the football game, that it's about youth and it's about community impact, and it's about involving people who aren't football fans. So um, I think. Uh, I sort of turned the model upside down and looked at it differently and had a diverse way in which I approached it. So whether that would be male or female, I happened to be one of the first people that thought to do it that way, and I happened to be female. So I think um, potentially it had something to do with it. I, I wasn't focused on the football part of it. I was focused on all the other things. The experience. Yes. The total experience. Yeah. That's awesome. You're part of, obviously, these Super Bowls. Yes. You're now at the IMS. I mean, mm-hmm. an amazing place iconic in the world really right we've also been to eight olympics Mm -hmm. yes of all these events that you've been a part of which has been your favorite and tell us about those that experience you know so many of them are different favorites for different reasons i um 
I what I attract to is doing the most complicated and largest events uh, because I look at them like jigsaw puzzles. You know, the Olympics has a million pieces of this jigsaw puzzle that all have to fit together with logistics and uh, transportation and security and credentials. And so I, I started uh, my career in doing major events that included Olympics. And that is what gave me that bug. You know, the bigger and the more complicated event and the harder it was, the more I liked it. And I like uh, solving problems. And all these events have lots of challenges and lots of problems. So um, the Super Bowl was was great because it was here. And it was it's not quite the same as an Olympics because it's not multinational, um, but it is a worldwide event. And it was the most detailed planning event I had worked on in our city. And I loved that because I had so many opportunities to interact with the businesses and the volunteers and the government officials and sort of, you know, back to what Robert said at the beginning, I... The, the pride that our fi- our city felt in putting that on because everybody worked together was uh, just fantastic. And so uh, then I came to, to IMS where um, we have the world's largest single-day sporting event. So uh, what attracted me to come here was that the complication of that and the challenge with that. So you take the Super Bowl and all of its, uh, how big and how many millions of puzzle pieces that is, and then you take the race and it's actually more. Uh, complicated puzzle pieces for different reasons. Mm-hmm. So if I if I did six Super Bowls at the same time, that's as big as what the race is. That's how many people come. And so it just mm-hmm. sort of multiplies it and gets bigger. So I came to IMS because I, I wanted another big challenge, and it was right here in my hometown. It's the world's largest single-day sporting event, and I never worked on it before. So uh, that's what I'm doing. That's an amazing kind of analogy and perspective yeah. to mm-hmm. give to the one-day largest event. What about, what's a jigsaw puzzle to use your analogy, yeah. that you'd love to take on someday before you retire? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I've actually worked my ninth Olympics just in 16 in Brazil. So I'm, I'm probably moving on from that. Nine's enough. They happen every four years. So uh, got a lot of gray hairs at the Olympics. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to be up for 2020. Um, so I'm probably moving on from that. And I don't know if I, um, the, the 500 is the biggest jigsaw puzzle. And if I ever got an opportunity to work a World Cup in another country, um, I'd probably do it. The World Cup is going to come to North America, I forget which year. In, uh, several years from now, um, so I don't know. I, I'm even though my career has been so focused on sports, I would tell you that uh, in my heart, I'm a community builder. I'm a community person, and I've taken the opportunity to take all these sporting events and try to build community and things that really impact community around the sporting event, with the sporting event as the excuse to do it. So my next challenge may not involve sports at all. I don't know. It, uh, as long as it's something that I feel like is going to impact this city and this region in a really positive way, that's what's going to attract me to it. You mentioned work in the Olympics. What, yeah. what does that mean? What did you do? Which mm-hmm. Olympics? Winter? Summer? Yep. Because that is a gigantic enterprise with tons of scrutiny. Yeah. So I, my first Olympics was in my mid-20s, in 1984, in Los Angeles. And I worked for ABC Sports. And I worked the, um, almost every Olympics except for one. I've worked the gymnastics competition. So in 84, I worked for ABC Sports and helped them with their broadcast as an expert. And then... Um, 88 in Seoul, Korea was my next one. And then in Barcelona, Spain, 92, I worked for the the, uh, Atlanta Olympic Organizing Committee and went to Spain. I was there for 
two, about two months working on uh, creating the plan for the Atlanta Olympics. And so I worked multiple venues. And then ever then the next Olympics was 2000 Sydney. And from Sydney on, so that would be Sydney 2000, Athens 2004, Beijing 2008, um, London 2012, and then Rio. I worked for NBC Sports as the associate producer uh, for the gymnastics competition. So all except one, I've just focused on gymnastics. So you were there in 84, and that's the Mary Lou Retton yes, year. Yes, yes. What was that like? And then I think 96, is that, Car- I'm, I'm not Carrie a, Strug, a, yes. a woman's gymnastics uh, <laughs> expert, yeah. even though I do remember watching Olga Corbett yes, in the 72 Olympics. Sure. What was it like to be there for these these events that are just, they, they kind of bring together the entire country because no matter how you vote or, or who you love yeah. or how you worship, you know, you're rooting for the United States. That is exactly what I love about the Olympics, what you just said, because it's when all nationalities, all backgrounds, all races come together and have a a common um, feeling about their country and about what they're representing. And um, I've I've been, some of my most amazing moments in life have been witnessing things at the Olympic Games that um, are remarkable. You know, I've been to most of the opening ceremonies. I worked the opening ceremonies in Beijing in China in 2008, which was unbelievable experience, how hard the residents worked um, that participated in it. You know, for two years, they had college students working on the performance that they were going to um, perform at the opening ceremonies. And the pride of those um, those students, they happened to all be college students, that's how they recruited, the pride of how they uh, represented China to the rest of the world in the, in the opening ceremonies, being on the floor with them working um, and being able to film what they were doing was was absolutely you know touching because of the pride that they felt in representing their country um, at the uh, in Barcelona at the 92 games I don't know if any of you remember this but there was a um, gentleman in the opening ceremonies that shot an arrow yeah. through the flame yeah. and I was actually sitting with Mary Lou Retton at the Olympic uh, opening ceremonies when that happened and to see the arrow go across all of the stadium and then light the flame I mean, it brought tears to everybody's eyes in there. It was it was remarkable. So I feel so blessed that I've had the chance to do so many of those things and see so many of those amazing moments that change people's lives. You know, Mary Lou Retton was was a 16 year old uh, gymnast one day, and the next day she was a you know a household name. And to walk through that with her and watch her do that, um, you know, again, I feel very thankful. How many passports have you been through? <laughs> no, actually, not the uh, four. I think <laughs> four. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> is, is there a, is there a singular moment? F- just sticking with the Olympics, yeah. and then we'll let I'll let Danielle take it from there. But a singular moment where you that you witnessed something personally and thought, "Wow, I'll never see this again." I mean, I know you focused yeah. on gymnastics, but mm-hmm. I mean, did you watch the dream, the dream Team in 92 I with did. Jordan and Magic and Bird? That's what I was going to – I went to the Dream Team game in 92. Um, gosh, there's, there's several. I saw Michael Phelps uh, in Beijing and in London um, win several gold medals. The swimming venue was, was close to our venue in most cases, and when you have your credential, you can run into the other venues. And so when we had time off – um, I got to see other things. Um, so I would say probably the Dream Team game w- was a big one because at the time, you know, it was the first time that pro players were playing and um, the, there was a worldwide phenomenon going on around them. 
and um, to see it was was really good. I actually saw it, that game with Sandy Knapp, uh, who used to run the Indiana Sports Corporation. She actually was over there too, and she got us uh, actual tickets to the game. So uh, that was fun to see her and you know be in another country watching basketball. You know, she used to work for the Pacers, and That's it was right. fun. So a uh, little different angle, but I want yeah. to talk about gymnastics. Yeah. And um, obviously gymnastics has been in the news for, sure. for a lot of really sad reasons. Yep. How has that, as a gymnast yourself and as someone who's been so attached to the sport, mm-hmm. how has that impacted you? Yeah, it's been, it's been really hard um, and really difficult to, wa- to um, sort of watch what's happening to the sport. Um, but there's so many uh, men and women who have been gymnasts who believe the sport is so positive and did so much to build who they are. I mean, so much of who I am, I believe, is because of my competitive gymnastics career and what it taught me. It taught me discipline. It taught me hard work. It taught me um, so so many of the character traits that I think I have come from um, working in gymnastics. And so it's it's had a lot of problems the last two years, but it's definitely on the upswing. They've hired a new uh, fantastic uh, president, executive director who just started, and um, it's time for healing. Mm-hmm. And, the, and and Larry Nasser should not be the face of what this sport is going forward. And he impacted a lot of people in a, in a horrible way, and it's a tragedy, and that needs to all be resolved, and support needs to certainly go to the victims, and, that, and that's happening. But the sport has to go forward. And, and so many of those women um, will tell you they still want the sport to survive. They still love the sport. They just want it changed. And the culture that allowed Larry to uh, be abusive has to change and is changing. So um, I'm on the side of, you know, what can I do to help? In the last two years, I have been helping. I've been trying to help um, a lot of the people that are involved to make sure that we're turning over every single stone to make sure things like that can never happen again. Um, so I feel like it's on the upswing. And um, the people involved in the sport, there's millions of wonderful coaches and judges and athletes. And we've got, you know, this one rotten uh, core here that uh, now he's in prison for life and that's where he should be. And so putting the sport back together, getting the right compliance in place to protect the athletes um, is what's going on now and, and obviously needs to continue and be intentional. And then I think the sport will survive and I think it will uh, come back to what it needs to be. If you had to come up with a Mount Rushmore of the four best gymnasts you've ever seen, mm. who would you choose? Hmm. Well, Simone Biles, for sure. You know, she she uh, rocked the Olympic world in uh, 2016 in Rio, and she's going to do that again in two years in Tokyo, or next year in Tokyo. <laughs> she will do it again. Uh, she is remarkable. Uh, Nastia Lukin, who won the 2008 Olympic Games, um, probably never a more beautiful gymnast. Um, she, uh, she, her father was uh, Olympic champion at the 88 Games, representing Russia, and um, she won the games and is was just remarkable. D- different gymnast. Simone's a very athletic gymnast, more difficulty, more tricks than than anyone in the world. Um, Nastia had an elegance and a beauty that no one else has ever had before. So uh, I would say the two of them, Mary Lou, certainly she was ahead of her time and, uh, you know, powerhouse, of course. And, um, you know, there's a couple uh, Russian gymnasts um, that were remarkable. Probably people don't know their names, but Svetlana Boganskaya, she was, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, that just had a way about her that was um, exceptional. Olga Corbett, everybody remembers. 
Uh, she was daring, and she sort of changed the world, you know, the way people looked at gymnastics, and Nadia Comaneci as well. So there's been a lot of great household names. Um, Simone will be around for a while because she's going to predict right here she's going to win the next Olympics too. So <laughs> she'll be the first back-to-back Olympic champion uh, in women's gymnastics in a while. Were you there when Carrie Shrug? Strug. Mm-hmm. Strug, excuse me. Stuck I was. It. I was. I was like four feet from her. Yeah, right there. Really? Yeah, I was. So what was floor. that? I mean, are you routine? I mean, because, you know, you're working for a media organization, yeah, right? So, yeah. I mean, our, one of a previous podcasts was with Bill Benner. Yes. Who's an IU grad, and it was covering the 87 National Championship game where Keith Smart uh, hit the shot that yeah. beat Syracuse. And we asked him, like, were you rooting for IU? And he said, no, I don't believe him. But he said, How no. How could you not be rooting for IU? Come on, Bill. <laughs> Yeah, give I him a scolding, Car- Allison. Yeah, exactly. I was rooting for Carrie the whole way, of course, you know, because we were in the Georgia Dome on the U.S. soil. Um, the women had not won an Olympic team medal in years. I mean, Mary Lou had won, but matter of fact, it was the first time the women won the gold medal team. And Carrie sticking that vault, that was what was going to happen if she landed it. And yes, as a broadcaster, we were, tr- we were trying not to act like we were rooting for Carrie, but <laughs> absolutely, my heart was jumping out of my chest saying, you got to stick this girl. You know, she, she is a tough little cookie. I'd known her for a while. She was on the Olympic team in 92, and um, I knew if anybody could do it, she could. And uh, she did. She was amazing. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. We're here with Allison Melangdon, local uh, not only leader, but living legend, as designated by the Indiana Historical Society. Here with Danielle Shockey. Go ahead. Um, so, this. So let's go back to the IMS, right? Yes. So I know yeah. we're, we're taking you on this whirlwind of your life. Right? Yeah, that's okay. Okay. Um, so for me, joining the Girl Scouts, so many misconceptions about our organization. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of curious. Are there common themes or things that people say about the Indianapolis Motorsports or the Speedway and you've had to correct them or things that have been, you know, kind of surprising in that way to you? You know, um, that's a great question. Let me think for a minute. Um, I think that a lot of people um, think that mostly racing people come to the Indy 500, but our our data would tell you that 80% of the people that come to the Indy 500 are epic event seekers and and aren't hardcore racing fans, and 20% are hardcore racing fans. You'd probably think that was reversed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love Doug Bowles. He's my uh, partner in crime here, the president of the Motor Speedway. And so when we get to make decisions and we're having a tough issue, I say, no, 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 I'm the 80% of the vote because <laughs> I'm I'm not the hardcore race person. I'm, I'm the epic event chaser. I'm the person that wants to be involved in all these big events, and you're the hardcore racing guy. So I get 80% of the vote. We laugh about it. <laughs> but... I would say that's probably the biggest one that people think, um, people that don't come to the race say, well, it's all racing fans, you know, but it really isn't. And matter of fact, a good example of that is over race weekend, we have over a hundred, well over a hundred thousand people that come here just to listen to music. So Friday we have carb day, tons of people come just to go to the concert. Uh, this year we've got foreigner and cool in the gang, which will be fun. And then next, uh, and then legends day, the next day is a country concert. This year we have Zach Brown. So yeah, like I'm a member of the Zamley. Okay. That's their fan club. Yeah. So I love Zach Brown too. And then on race day, we've got the snake pit and those, 
the people that go to the snake pit, they don't even know there's a race going on. We sell out to 30,000 millennials. It goes on during the race. They, they have no idea there's a race even happening. So um, the other misconception, you know, is that, uh, that, that you, you know, again, you need to love racing to come. We have over 100,000 people that come here, which is a lot more than even go to a Colts game. I mean, the Lucas Oil Stadium fits about 65,000, and we have 100,000 just come from music. So um, it's a lot of people, and uh, we're trying to attract those people, you know, not just the hardcore race fan. Just like with the Super Bowl, we were trying to attract people to get involved and be engaged that weren't necessarily just hardcore football fans. We did the Super Scarf program, and 13,000 people knit scarves, and I guarantee you they were not all hardcore football fans and paint their faces and do all the other things. I bet they weren't. I bet they were people that just wanted to be involved. So to that point, what are you thinking is the future of just the Speedway, year-round, other events? Um, Girl Scouts was a part of the IWIT, yeah. um, the women's golf. Yep. Um, so are there things like that on the radar that um, that aren't secret that you can talk about that are exciting that our community should know about? Sure. So we, we've done probably the last five years, four and a half years to five years, we've really tried to expand into more of a year-round facility. And we've added our holiday lights program, which we start around Thanksgiving and go through uh, just about New Year's Eve, um, where we've got over 3 million lights out here where p- uh, families come and uh, drive through the lights to be able to have a holiday experience. Um, we've had a lot of proposals on those nights, which is all fun. People like to kneel down in front of their favorite little, little lit up thing and get engaged. So uh, we've added that at the end of the year. And then we've got uh, a number of events through the summer, car shows and different things. So we're trying, it used to be just May. And then the Brickyard came, um, and so that sort of bookended the summer. And then um, we've added the lights, and we've also added the Red Bull Air Race, which is in October. So we've got, uh, I think IndyCar drivers are crazy, but no, Red Bull pilots are crazier than IndyCar drivers. <laughs> and the our drivers that have gone up in the planes with uh, some of the Red Bull drivers, they come down and say, that's that's crazier than we are. So um, we've added that in October. So we've been uh, continuing to add and expand to our calendar and lengthen out the time um, that people can come out to IMS and enjoy things. You mentioned doing the uh, Olympics in 2008. Yes. That would have been the same time period that Indianapolis was awarded the Super Bowl. Yes, right, right about exactly the same time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was working for your friend Mike Diltz yes, uh-huh. from Shield Sexton yeah. at that time before I went to go to the mayor's office in November of eight. So, talk a little bit about two thousand eight. How were you involved with the bid? Like, how did your yeah. involvement come to pass? Yeah. That was such a wonderful period of my life. I mean, my, my life's all been wonderful, but that particular time was was so fun. So we in 2007, we bid on the 2011 Super Bowl. And um, Fred Glass, who at the time was leading the CIB, and Jack Swarbrick, uh, who was the chairman of the Sports Corporation, led that bid. I was the person that staffed them to put that bid together. So we I worked all of 2006, that whole year, on the bid. Uh, we presented it in May of seven. And we ended up losing to Dallas. Uh, and that was a heartbreaking loss. There, there were, you know, of course it's heartbreaking, but Tony Dungy did our pitch and he was amazing. I mean, it was just, he's such an incredible guy. And it and was they interesting. reached out to you, uh, Jack and Yeah, so I was working Fred at this. Yep, yeah, I was working at the Sports Corporation at the time. And I was doing all the bids for Big Ten and the Olympic okay. trials. So I was already for the city in the position that I was working on bids to bring sports events here. 
Um, and I had uh, been working at the Sports Corp at that point since 94, so it had been a while. And um, so I went off, went out, left the Sports Corporation on a temporary loan to Fred and Jack and worked out of their office. And um, so we lost in May. And um, it was interesting. I was going to tell you about Tony Dungy because before he went in to do the pitch, he was pacing and pacing and pacing. And I said, "Are you? You know, can I get you anything? Are you okay?" And he said, "I'm so nervous." I said, "You just won the Super Bowl. How can you be nervous?" You know, I like. <laughs> uh, and he said, "Those the guys are my peeps. Those, that those are my guys. The NFL owners in this crowd. This is not my crowd." Um, but, you know, he was so humble and wonderful. But anyway, so we lost. And then um, we licked our wounds for a while and then uh, put everything aside. And then Mayor Ballard got elected in uh, so January 08. He got going. And then he said, um, or right before he got going, so I guess November, December, he said, I want I think we want to bid again. So we started putting a bid together again for 12. Well, I can tell you as, as his press secretary for yeah. the transition from November to December 2007, he got that question more than any other. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't sure, quite yeah. frankly. He wasn't sure if, if he thought that should be the focus. I don't think we decided to do it till February. I think that's right. Because it, yeah. it, was, it was not, I'm not going to say it wasn't an easy decision. It, you know, yeah. In the hindsight, it looked like, why, why wouldn't you, right? It turned out so wonderfully. But he felt like maybe he was elected to do other things. Right. But I mean, to the credit of the, of the kind of corporate and philanthropic and sports community, they they let him stew on it a little bit. Right. And then when he went out, he was he was all in. Yeah, he came out to Phoenix. I actually picked him up at the airport. And we didn't, we, we had several meetings in Phoenix with the team of people that were there. You know, it was Jack, myself, and, and um, Mark Miles had come into the picture there because he had moved back to Indianapolis after running the ATP. And um, some of the city leadership was saying, if we're going to do this, Mark, we want you to, to be a part of it. So in February, after you're exactly right, was when Mayor Ballard said, let's pull the trigger. And we had until May to do the bid. And so we were in a big old hurry to get it done. And um, so we we went through and got the bid, which was really a fantastic experience. And then um, that was May. And then I left in July, early July, to go to the Olympics. And I was going to be gone for five weeks. And right before I left, Mark and Mayor Ballard and Jack Swarbrick uh, called me and said, can you come down to the mayor's office? So I went down there, and that's when Jack told me he was going to Notre Dame. And he said, oh. uh, I'm leaving to go to Notre Dame, going to be the athletic director. And I said, what? We just got the Super Bowl. <laughs> You're like one of our leaders. Uh, and he said, you and Mark are going to be fine. And then uh, Mark and Mayor Ballard offered me the job. So right before I left, uh, it was like the day before I went to China, um, they offered me the job. And I said, okay, I need a day to talk to my husband and my family and think about it. Uh, and then I came back in August and got started pretty quickly once I got back. And in that incubation period between February and May, is that where some of the ideas mm-hmm. came up for, because we, we've had Mayor Ballard on the Leaders and Legends podcast, and we've had Bill Benner on the podcast, and they both said that Indianapolis completely changed how Super Bowls are held. Yeah. Which is remarkable, A, that Indianapolis ever held a Super Bowl yeah. for those of us who grew up here our whole lives and can remember when it was tumbleweed city at five o'clock on a Saturday night downtown. But how did, how did some of these ideas, some of these transformative events and presentations 
how did it come about in your mind and in the committee's mind? Because you yeah. had people like Susan Boffman, you yeah. had a terrific, terrific staff. You know, it really started um, with the bid. And I'll give you an example. Um, Jack and Mark are in- incredible thinkers. It's one of the reasons I, I love working with both of them so much. They don't let um, what I would con- normally consider to be an obstacle be an obstacle ever. There's no obstacles in anything they do ever, <laughs> which is, which is you know, in my mind, the way I work, like you're thinking through a project, oh, there's an obstacle, there's an obstacle. So um, this is an example. When we were trying to decide how to deliver the bids to the owners, you know, what is, you got four or five cities bidding, and Indianapolis, we, we know we're not going to be the first book opened, right? We know this. And so how are we going to actually deliver the book to Jerry Jones so he takes it out of the box, looks at it first, and opens it? And we, um, Jack, myself, Susan Boffman, um, Mark Miles, and Roseanne Hunter, who used to work for Jack, uh, locked ourselves in a conference room, and we said we're going to take the whole day. We're going to come out at the end of the day, or if we have a good idea in an hour, then we've got the rest of the way to, day to do it. Um, how are we going to deliver these things? You know, if it's Nashville, they deliver things in guitars. You know, what 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 do we do? And um, we had a big whiteboard, and three or four hours in, you know, we had all these ideas and these different things. And then Jack said, um, "Okay, everybody, take ten minutes and just think," which is hard for me because I like to talk, right? So, yeah. so take <laughs> ten minutes and just think. So everyone just sat there, and then Jack, after ten minutes, Jack said, "So, what if we took eighth graders? That would be." seniors in 2012 and we found 32 eighth graders in the state that would be um, perfect to fly all over the country on May 8th and deliver hand deliver the books to the owners and look those owners in the eye and say this is why you need to pick Indianapolis and my first thought was I have an eighth grader and there is no way my eighth grader, <laughs> no way my eighth grader could do that. Um, and Jack said, but not all eighth graders are Cameron, because he knows my son is very shy. And uh, I said, okay, let, let's break that apart a minute. And then for the next hour, we sort of whiteboarded that. What would that look like? Who would those kids be? What would we have them say? And then we read the rule book. It just says deliver. It doesn't say how to deliver. So we decided we were going to do that. And... That that's a big sort of leap of faith of change because it also could be perceived by the 32 owners as this is the ridiculous Midwest, right? They're sending me an eighth Corn grader. Corn pone, you know. Right. So risky for sure, but um, it was what we were and what we were trying to say with the bid. This, this, this Super Bowl will be more um, about this community, more about this youth, more about impact and the things that we want to do around it than what actually happens on the field because we know you, NFL, you guys got that. So I called the NFL that night and uh, I said, this is what we're going to do and dead silence on the other end of the line. And uh, <laughs> I said, Frank, you still there? He was a VP at the NFL and he said, yes, you guys have run, you guys are doing a really good job. And I'm I'm trying to understand why everything your city has worked for for all these years and all the sports that you've done and how much you've invested in this bid, why are you trusting it to eighth graders? And I said, because that's that's who we are. That's what we want to do, and youth matters to us. And we're gonna, that's where we're going to put our chips. And if we lose over it, it's okay. But that's what we want to do. And I'll tell you, the day those kids left at the airport – top five days of my whole life. Those kids were so excited. And we did a draft. 
um, Adre at the Colts, where they drew what city they were going to. Half of them had never flown before, and um, it was remarkable. And it worked. We got the bid. The kids did a great job. They met with all the owners, and um, it was a game changer. You talk about overcoming obstacles. That's a yeah. great segue to the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, no, I was just, as you told that story about risks and setbacks and scary decision making, yeah. in any part of any one of your roles in leadership or Super Bowl bids or whatever, has there ever been something you're like, oh, yeah, I knew that was a mistake and I wish I could take it back? Um, Probably not a mistake, but things that I wish I would have tweaked differently. Um, usually I can catch the things when they start derailing. So they don't get all the way to a mistake. They just start derailing and you go, Ooh, ouch, I should, we should, we should, you know, get this back on track. Um, but that's part of it, right? Especially in the event world and all these big events, things can get off track quickly and you've got to have the right people. I mean, everybody knows this, right? The right people, the right process to get it back on track. You know, we had a lot of things that started derailing with Super Bowl, but we caught them in time and we're, we were able to get them straightened out. How about the ideas? So for 2018, mm-hmm. um, you worked on the bid, right? The the next unsuccessful yes, bid? Yes, correct. Yep. So again, when you put a bid out there, yeah. you know, okay, this is our, our best work. Yep. But then when it's unsuccessful, do you? how often do you rehash that? And you think, oh, if we'd just done that other yeah. idea, does that plague you? It did on the 2018 Super Bowl bid. Um, I got to give a shout out to Jeff Saturday amazing human being. He and I did the presentation together. He was amazing. I just, I just love that guy. I'm too, I'm mad he moved to Alabama or wherever he moved to. <laughs> um, but we, we had a few regrets about that, but I don't think that's why we lost. I think we were looking, when you do the Super Bowl bids, you sort of look at the next 12 to 15 years. And we knew that Minnesota's stadium was going to come online. Mm-hmm. And so we knew if we didn't get in quick, and bid before Minnesota Stadium was built, that then it was going to be a long haul. And we had a lot of um, a lot of community leaders, a lot of business leaders saying, don't miss this opportunity. So that's why we went in quick. Um, so that was in 14. So two years after we had the game, we bid for 18. And in the end, Minnesota got it, but they had never awarded a Super Bowl to a stadium that was not already built. And so we had we it was it, they hadn't broken ground yet we had uh, relied on history and thought that they wouldn't award it to minnesota mm-hmm. because they hadn't broken ground yet but somehow in minnesota's presentation they convinced them there was not going to be a delay in putting the shovel in the ground there was not going to be a problem with financing there was not going to be a problem blah 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 um, so I don't regret that we did it. Um, and, and I don't know how we could have really um, had some foresight on that part of it. But in the end, that's why we lost. You mentioned earlier about hosting other events. And I think it was Bill Benner, all of our friend, the wonderful Bill Benner. Love Bill Benner. Who ended up, his picture, his mug was on the front page oh, above I, the fold of the Indianapolis Star when Indianapolis won the Super Bowl bid. I was like, how the hell does that happen? I know, because he was in the stadium doing a tour that day when, when we texted him and said we won. <laughs> and he, 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 <laughs> yeah, that is hysterical. He was. His mouth was like wide open on the front page know, of the Star. Did he yeah. have a hard hat on or <laughs> yes, something? Yes, he did. He mentioned something in... in um, Maybe it gets overlooked in the in the litany of things. The Pan Am Games in '87, yep. which you were very much involved in. Yep. How important was it for Indianapolis to pull that off in order to be seen as a city that could keep rising up to the big leagues, for lack of a better term? It was huge. 
um, because that event was a monster. I mean, Olympics and then PM Games, um, it, it was a huge event. Um, I'm to make sure I have my facts right, but I think Venezuela defaulted on hosting it. So we only had two years' notice. Normally you'd have four years. Venezuela, I don't remember why, whether it was a corruption issue or a financing issue, but they went back to the PAGU, which is the Pan Am Games Union, and said, we can't do it. And then Sandy Knapp, Mark Miles, Ted Boehm, you know, uh, swooped in on that opportunity and said, we'll figure it out, even though they didn't really have a plan. Um, and pulling that off, there had never been a more successful Pan Am Games. And um, it, it is really what put Indianapolis on the sports map. We'd hosted the uh, sports festival in 82, and sort of people were like, oh, they, they did a really good job on and that. And the National Sports Festival, which was kind of like an, an yeah. internal, amateur. Yes, exactly, mm-hmm. in, in 82. But we hadn't had a big event since then, and so the Pan Am Games was the game changer. And they had 37,000 volunteers. Super Bowl, we had uh, about 13,000. So think about that. I mean, 37,000 mm. volunteers. And the city completely mobilized for that event and did an incredible job. So the Pan Am Games really was the the turning point. And the thing that I, I think is true about Pan Ams and Super Bowl is people, residents of this city felt differently the day before it started about the city than the day it ended. If you lived here before the Pan Am Games, before opening ceremonies, it was like, yeah, I live in Indianapolis. After, it was like, I live in Indianapolis, man, and it's the bomb. And a little bit of the same thing happened after Super Bowl. I remember John Licklider told me, um, the former CEO at Lilly, the best thing that the Super Bowl did for Lilly was he um, said he had trouble attracting um, high-level talent scientists, really talented scientists, uh, to come to Lilly because they were always wanting to go to Boston or California. And the Super Bowl, all of a sudden, Indianapolis was in the game. Like, oh, you guys, you know, must be a cool place to live and did a great job in the Super Bowl, so we'll consider Indianapolis. And he thought it was a huge talent recruitment um, opportunity after Super Bowl. How often did you check the Weather Channel in the weeks uh, heading obsessed, up to Obsessed. Obsessed. <laughs> I only know this because I remember a conversation you and I had, and, and I was like, you know, how much is the weather going to affect your plans? Obviously, they chose Indianapolis because it had a, a you know a domed stadium and closed yeah. stadium. But I don't know if we had iPhones. Yeah, we had iPhones by sort that time. Of, yeah. Is it refresh, refresh, refresh? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I was <laughs> obsessed with the weather. I'll tell you, we lived through our little uh, bid. Our, our Super Bowl team lived through the Dallas Super Bowl which had massive weather problems one year before. And we thought we had a really good weather plan, and we went to Texas, and it shut down the entire city. Ice storm. Ice storm. Mm -hmm. And we came back, and we drilled in hard on our plan and spent hours and hours and hours refining and tweaking and actually recruited Jim Schellinger to come um, CEO Gen- of uh, CSO Gen- Architects. Yeah, yes. we, we recruited him on Mike Dilt's recommendation uh, to come in and drill into that plan and make sure we didn't uh, miss one thing. And Jim spent a ton of volunteers hour- hours on that. We had, I think, 18 agencies that met every other week for a year going through that plan to make sure we didn't miss a thing. Um, and, you know, people say, oh, the Super Bowl had great weather. You didn't have to worry about it. But I slept every night knowing that we had the best plan ever. And we didn't have great weather for 10 days. We had great weather on game day. We had to uh, shut down the zip line at least three times due to high, w- high winds. And we had snow. We had uh, an ice storm 
brief and it didn't stay that icy, but we had all kinds of weather that week. But everybody says, oh, you know, it was perfect. It was only perfect on game day. <laughs> In the administration, we'd call that Ballard weather. He had it, this he did. amazing yeah. run of luck for outdoor news conferences and press events and, and you know, spade turnings and that yeah. ribbon cuttings. And it was unbelievable. It's February and it's 75 <laughs> and sunny. And of course, he took credit for it, as, right. as you would expect. Yeah, exactly. Um, Talk a little bit, please, about your personal experience away from being the CEO of the Super Bowl, where you just took time off and just walked to the village Mm -hmm. or walked outside. Yeah. Because there was never, and I've said this on almost every podcast, and I guess I should keep saying it. When I was a kid, I was born in 67, Mm -hmm. lived here my whole life, except for the time I was in the military. You never went downtown. I never did unless I went to go see Dick the Bruiser. Yeah. It was yeah. the only reason to go. Yeah. And yet, you know, that week leading up to the Super Bowl or that weekend, you know, who's your girl? Did you just walk? I think you and Miles did the zip line, as yeah, I recall. We did. We did you just did. walk around and go, wow, I can throw one hell of a party? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I never said I could throw one hell of a party because I felt like the whole community threw the party. I felt like I had, you know, everybody was helping do everything. And for four years, anytime I ran into someone on the street corner, and they'd say, Oh, you're the, you know, you're the woman running the Super Bowl. If you need help, you know, just let us know. And I said, Can I have your business card? And then I'd write down what day, what day I saw them, what corner I saw them on. I called every, I probably had 400 cards that last six months. I called every one of those people. Hey, I need a favor. I need a favor. And everybody said yes. So I felt like it was all of us working together. But I did have some of those moments you're describing. When we, when Mayor Ballard and Mark and I and Andre Carson cut the ribbon to open the village, it was 60 degrees out. The Boy Scouts <laughs> were ziplining over us. Um, and we... It was a beautiful day, and I thought, okay, we got 10 days to go, and we made it this far, and everything's okay. Took a deep breath. And then um, several times that week, I walked uh, around, and the one that will always stand out in my mind is I was walking down Georgia Street. It was packed with people. Everybody was having a great time, and I ran into Mayor Hudnut, and and he started crying. Hmm. He just stood in the middle of the street and started crying. And he put his head on my shoulder and he said, I never, ever could have imagined. And it was very touching um, that, I, that I, you know, I just ran into him. He was just walking around, looking around. Uh, so I, I had several of those moments. I had one um, with Sherry Daniels, too, uh, Sherry and uh, Mitch's wife, um, because I had a lot of late night calls to Mitch Daniels and she, she was great. <laughs> I, had his, I, had, I had a lot of direct calls to Mitch middle of the night. I, I need this. I need this. I need this. That last couple of weeks. And Mitch always took my call. And uh, Sherry and I were kind of just standing there um, walking around, just like not saying anything to each other, but just like, oh, my gosh, this is actually happening and it's going well. <laughs> Nothing's going wrong. Uh, so, yeah, it was great. Well, so I'm thinking about your, your family. Yes. You know, your, yeah. your husband and your son. Yes. Right? They had to have had some really cool experiences yeah. um, alongside you. If they were here, what would they say is their most favorite opportunity that they've been with you? Um, gosh, they've both been to a couple Olympics and I, and I would say the Super Bowl was probably the highlight, but I did, they both got to go to London and they both went to Beijing, which was fun uh, for them. And, um, the Super Bowl was, was great because I, I didn't take that job, um, without a family commitment for, for four years, my husband did all of the cook. I'm not exaggerating. This is God's (laughs) truth. He did all of the cooking, all of the cleaning, 
all of the grocery shopping, all of the dry cleaning. He did everything. And before I took the job, we decided that we would make that that change in our life, and it would require that for me to do it. My son was a freshman in high school. I knew that would mean missing some of his soccer games. Uh, so the three of us decided, not me, that I was going to take that job and that um, it would be we would work together to make it work. Um, and I relied on them a lot for a lot of things um, and, a, and a lot of emotional support because there were days, you know, you work so many days, 20 hours in a day, you're tired. And uh, they they were good um, thought thinkers for me. I go home at night and say, oh my gosh, I have this problem and this is how I would solve it. And sometimes out of the mouth of a 15-year-old boy, he has the right answer, right? Because he's not involved in all this stuff every day. Um, so I would say uh, at the at the game, we, you know, we, we went to the game together and, um, and I always said I would never go to the game if we were having one problem. Everyone's like, are you going to go to the game? Are you going to go to the game? I said, if one single thing is not going right, I will not go to the game, and you guys go without me. And whoever, whatever volunteer you find on the street, give them my ticket. Um, and the entire day, everything went perfect. Nothing went wrong. I kept looking at my radio going, is it broken? It's not working. <laughs> my phone's not ringing. What's going on? And everybody was doing their job. So at you know 4 o'clock, I said, I'm going to go in the stadium, sat the game with my phone and my radio the whole time. Nothing happened. I was going to ask you, did you actually get to go and sit someplace and watch the game? So I did. Eat the meal that you cooked for the four years? (laughs) So the funny thing is, I was sitting there in the end of the third quarter, and I was was really tired. It was like all the stress. I physically felt all four years of stress dripping out of me. And I'm watching the game, and the Patriots are winning. And I'm like, this is is not how the movie ends <laughs> in Lucas Oil Stadium where the Colts play. The Patriots are not going to win this game. I mean, it, I just never pictured that that was what was going to happen after all this work. Not that the Patriots are terrible, but it was in our home turf with the rivalry with the Colts. So then it was like Eli Manning came to life, and then he starts, you know, driving down the field and they score the giant score and I'm thinking okay and then they score again and then they're going to win and I thought okay <laughs> I just thought after four years and all this there's no <laughs> way the Patriots win in the Colts football stadium uh so I did watch the game and uh we didn't the game wasn't over because we had to get hundred and something thousand people out of town I have a great picture the next day at about three o'clock in the afternoon with Mayor Ballard and myself and the VP of the NFL at my office because most of the people, you know, we got most of the people that were on the teams out. And so it was like two, three o'clock in the afternoon. And both Frank Sapovitz from the NFL and Mayor Ballard came by to the office uh, to see if I was okay. And we have a great picture of just like, okay, it's over. It's, it's just about over. We got to tear everything down, but it's about over. It was good. Did it, did it ever bring you to tears? Yes. It was a day in the village that I, I just, I started crying, walking around like, this is, I, I was so thankful. The tears were from, and I'll cry again thinking about it, being so thankful that everybody helped. We're all crying. <laughs> everybody in the community stepped forward and said, what can I do? And to be on the receiving end of that and this, you know, just this collection of everybody wants to help and here I'm dispatching and, and sending everybody out, that was so, uh, was such a blessing for my life. I mean, it was, I was so thankful. I was thankful for, for our government officials. I was getting calls from all kinds of state representatives and, and 
couple senators on my voicemail every day just saying, we're praying for you. If you need anything, call me. I mean, every day my voicemail wasn't, you know, you're doing all these things wrong. Get people. Mm. It was all this outreach of we care so much about all of you. If anybody needs anything, tell us. We want to fix it. Um, so I was so grateful um, for the outpouring of businesses and um, volunteers. I saw so many amazing volunteer stories. I mean, we had a woman in Michigan City, Indiana, Bev Meska. She makes me cry to this day. She passed uh, several years ago. She knitted 280-something scarves, and she was 88 years old. And and she did it because she was she did it out of compassion. She said, I am afraid that our sweet Hoosier volunteers are going to be cold outside. So for a year, all she did was knit her fingers to the bone, making 200 and something scars for volunteers. I mean, that's, she's the Super Bowl MVP. Love Eli Manning that he, that he beat the <laughs> Patriots. But she, to me, is the Super Bowl MVP. Somebody that gave that much of her heart and that much of her volunteer time and cared so much. And she lives in Michigan City, Indiana, and she'd never even watched a Super Bowl. I asked her that, and she said, I don't remember if I've ever watched the Super Bowl. So she, <laughs> she didn't even care about football. She cared about community. She cared about people. She cared about volunteers and service. So that was what was so great about how this community loved the Super Bowl. Matter of fact, when the Super Bowl was over, you have this meeting at the NFL, and you know you hear stories about it for years. They call in the host committee leader, and they tell you for four hours all the things you could have done differently so you can get ready for your next one. And Mark and I were going together, and it was about six to eight weeks after the Super Bowl, and I got to the airport that morning. I've got all my binders and all my stuff, and I'm fully prepared. I've been killing myself trying to make sure I had all the data and everything. And I get to the airport. Mark's not there. Mark's not there. He's kind of a late, you know, arriver. <laughs> so anyway, I get on the plane. He's not there. And I'm thinking, where is he? And so he calls me. So I pick up. I go, hey, like, you want the gate? <laughs> he says, you know what? My wife's sick. I'm not going to make it. And I thought, well, how sick is she? She better be dying. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. I love Helen. But um, I said, really? You're not coming? He's like, no, I can't. I was like, okay. He goes, you'll be fine. So I fly to New York. I go to the meeting. um, And, you know, they, I think there was nine gentlemen in the room and me. And they, they were great. They're like, you know, Indianapolis did a great job. Here's some thoughts we want to give you about maybe some things to think about for your next bid. Okay, so we go to the second or third person. And then the third guy goes and he says, I think we have this wrong. He says, we have four hours booked. And I think we need to sit back and we need to listen to Allison about how Indianapolis put a heart in the Super Bowl. No city has ever done that for us. How did you get that done? And I said, you know, the interesting thing, it wasn't me. It was everybody else. So let's talk about that. How do you how do you get a community to love a Super Bowl so much that they do knit 200 scarves and they do all these things? Um, back to your first question you asked me, I think because you tip it upside mm-hmm. down and you think about it, not like a football game. And so the NFL understood the, the impact and the difference here for them to be able to say that. How did you put a heart in the Super Bowl? Because Super Bowl hosting is famous regardless, right? I mean, Los Angeles, New Orleans, Miami, a lot of the same cities have hosted it multiple times. Yeah. But for Indianapolis to host it, I mean, it was a singular event in the city's history in a way that it just wouldn't be for Los Angeles. Right. Or wouldn't be for New York or or a bigger bigger, uh, city or Miami that hosts lots of things. 
But the people are different. That's right. Because um, I have a thank you book of, of notes, you know, from Mike Tirico and Bob Costas and media, major media names that travel to worldwide events everywhere. And the theme on all of their thank you notes was the I felt so welcomed and so helped and so appreciated in Indianapolis. Volunteers would stop me and say, do you need anything today? I mean, that's the whole theme of all the thank you notes. And that doesn't, that part, you can't, you can't make LA do that. Well, and uh, I used to see you, we used to joke when I would see you that the uh, Cafe Patishu downtown was the Super Bowl headquarters annex. (laughs) I'm still convinced it was. And I was there one morning with my kids close to the Super Bowl and Bob Costas walked in Mm -hmm. with his wife and he sat right next to me. I introduced himself, told him what I did for a living and who I worked for. And he was very, very kind. And at the end, I tried to pick up his check and he wouldn't let me. Ah, there you go. And so I think he probably encountered... Much, much more generous and much more uh, large examples of Hoosier hospitality as he goes through. And then I've mentioned this on on previous podcasts, but the Big Ten football championship has been here since its inception. And after the last one, Mike Greenberg, who has, I believe, over two million, excuse me, more than two million Twitter followers, uh, tweeted, Indianapolis is the best big game city in the country. Yeah. And so much of that is the people. I mean, we've we've worked on the infrastructure, we've worked on the venues, but but for someone like Mike Greenberg, he, he feels like he can do anything here because he'll just ask for help. I need this here, and somebody will help him. I mean, people just want to help here, and that is not the same in all these other cities that host these events, and it, it is a difference maker for us, and it, it will continue to be because rights holders and people that bring events here – um, you can't get that personal part of it. I mean, it happened with the FINA World Swimming Championships in 2004 and the World Basketball Championships. All these events that come here, that is their huge takeaway. This was organized. The venues are great. The city's great. But the people are unbelievable. That's awesome. So I don't know, Robert, if you know this or not, but Allison was a Girl Scout. I was a Girl Scout. And we honored you for <laughs> yes. um, courage, I believe. No, I was confidence. not. Confidence. <laughs> So listening to you now, and I have to think back when you were a Girl Scout, right? Yeah. I don't know how old you might have been. Let's say 15-year-old Allison. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give, what advice would 15-year-old Allison give you? I would say to believe in yourself. So many of our young women, and I know you, you battle this every day, they have a hard time believing in themselves and having confidence and having courage. And it's so easy in this day and age, um, you know, especially with social media, to, to question yourself and question if you're good enough, if you're worthy enough, if you're smart enough, if you're beautiful enough, all those things. And um, everybody is different and everybody has uh, something great about them and they all need to believe that. I wish as a young girl I would have been more confident and it took, you know, it takes time and um, I don't want our young women, uh, Girl Scout age, college age, young work life age, uh, to lose years trying to prove they're worthy of something, that we're all worthy and um, to believe in themselves. You mentioned, we've talked a lot about the Super Bowl. We take just a couple of minutes. Uh, the 500 has come back, and it dipped for a little while, and yep. I think everybody would acknowledge that. Sure. And, and we have this amazing triumvirate of, of Mark Miles, who's a singular leader in this city and state and has been for a long time, Doug Bowles and yourself. How did Indianapolis 
did the 500 come back? And I know it's a continuing journey, Mm -hmm. but as I was saying before we started, my 18-year-old son is absolutely hooked. Yeah. And I can't see that ever changing. And and that's a lot of what you have to do is bring in the new generation. Yep. I grew up in the era, in the golden era, sure. for like Foyt, Andretti, Unzers, Mears, so on and so forth. Um, is it tough to do what you're doing with the competition for entertainment dollars and high definition TV and everything? Yeah. How are you pulling it off? Because it's happening. You know, um, I think we we put a heart back in the event a little bit, trying to follow the Super Bowl plan. You know, we the 100th running was an opportunity that um, I felt more pressure about delivering the 100th running than anything I've ever worked on in my life, more so than the Super Bowl. Um, because the Super Bowl, we built from the ground up. The 500 had a 99-year history with some ups and downs, as you indicated. And the 100th running in 2016 was the foundation to build upon the future. And if we missed that... Uh, the gravity of of taking it would have taken so much longer to get May back uh, was was heavy on my shoulders, Doug's shoulders, and Mark's shoulders. And so we worked hard um, to try to reconnect it with the community, not to make 16th Street out here, eight miles from downtown, feel like it was 100 miles from downtown, because I think a lot of people felt like it was 100 miles from downtown. So what are the things we can do in the community to reconnect the excitement of the race, you know, we, we should be proud as a city that we have hosted for now 103 years the largest single-day sporting event in the world. No, no other city in the world can say that. And there's only a few sporting events I can count on one hand that have had a 100-year run. The Kentucky Derby is one. But there's, we're an elite company, and um, we needed to make sure we rebuilt the foundation in 16 to be able to go forward. What's the next 100 going to look like? So um, a lot of 2016 was building around what community programs we can do. We came up with porch parties, which we are wanting people to come out of their house, celebrate with their neighbor, talk to their neighbor. There's lots of data out there that if neighbors know neighbors and streets back-to-back people know each other, there's less violence, there's more connection, there's more problem solving. So how are there ways that we connect people to what's going on here, even if you don't come here? And uh, sort of bringing back the checkered flags in May, getting the community to celebrate, reconnect, uh, 500 Fashion Fridays. Let's get people to be excited about wearing checkers and, and being connected. So like Bev Mesca knitting a scarf in Michigan City, Indiana, she was connected to the Super Bowl and felt good about that. How do we get a single mom with four kids who lives in Plainfield to feel connected to the race? Well, she can have a porch party. She can participate in 500 Fashion Fridays and so on. So I think Getting it a little bit beyond the race was an important part of that. We're continuing to do that, but I think that started it. And the concerts people. appear to be... Concerts are bringing people here, for sure. Um, so on property, adding the concerts has been a big uh, change for us. Carb Day's been going on for a while, but we've reinvented it. We've added Legends Day and then added the Snake Pit. And moving it to Friday was yes. a brilliant yep. idea. Yeah. Um, we have just a few minutes left, but you mentioned something earlier about your next challenge. And I know there is a, a particular issue that you're heavily engaged in, yeah. and that is homeless, yep. the problem and the crisis of homelessness in yes. the city. Uh, talk a little bit about what you're doing on that score. Yeah, so I've been involved with the Women and Children's Center for Wheeler Mission for a while. And the interesting thing is most people, I would tell you 80% of the people in this city and, and most women don't know 
where it is. It is uh, Wheeler Women and Children's Center is on East Michigan Avenue, 10 minutes east of downtown. They have um, a long-term program there, and they have emergency overnight housing. And what's happened this winter, and it's been cold, but it's not record cold, Um, the women and children in this city, uh, numbers are spiking. And Wheeler has been turning away over 700 requests a month from women and children for shelter. And that's not acceptable to me. That, that number is climbing. Um, we are a community that is um, not too big or too small. We can solve this problem if we get the right people working on it. And um, I've talked with Joe Hogsett. He's, he's great. And um, Scott Dorsey's helping. There's lots of people um, that are coming around this issue. But why in this community in our great city are more and more women and children becoming homeless? And so that's sort of problem one, trying to diagnose that and understand that. Number two, what are we going to do about it? And Wheeler has an expansion uh, planned. We're trying to raise money for that. There's a capital campaign going on. We need $12 million total. Uh, we can break ground at $7 million, and we're just shy of $4 million right now. And um, I, my, my prayer is that we can break ground before winter comes because the longer we delay, the more women and children um, ha- that have nowhere to go. And so I'm not sure if more women and children are leaving uh, domestic violence situations because they're more comfortable with the way society is now. Um, but there's, there's, we're, we're trying to diagnose and understand why the need has has really tripled in a few years. Because that's in the old, is that in the old Dearborn Hotel? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I went yeah. to grade school right across yeah. the street, and my mother, who was a nurse, used to go there and give free, you know, help assist there. Yeah. Both at that um, and the one on Delaware. The, the, the original the Wheeler original Wheeler yeah from, yeah where the men are yep have you come up with a, a template to put the heart back into the Wheeler mission not that it ever left but yeah. to, to replicate what has been successful in other endeavors of yours yes we're um, and we've got a lot of great women working on it and um, I, over the holidays Tamika Ketchings and Anne Marie Tiernan and uh, former Lieutenant Governor Elsperman to, we, a bunch of us went out there and participated in one of their Christmas programs with the children uh, and the moms that are there and it was so heartwarming and part of it for me is awareness let's get some women out there so that they understand the need they understand and we can talk about it and and I and I want to put a face on on the women and children homeless part of this and say women and children are homeless not just homeless people women sure. and children are homeless and um, the Lutheran Church that's by the, the mission over there uh, did overflow for families this year so one night we had 121 women and children who couldn't fit into Wheeler uh, women and Children's Center that were sleeping on the floor at Cornerstone Lutheran. And so that was a, a big uh, assistance for us to get to get some overflow. But that's not a long-term solution. So um, number one, awareness. We've got to get more people aware and talking about it, that it's happening. Um, Channel 8 did a, just a great story a couple of weeks ago. They interviewed a 10-year-old girl who was so well-spoken who was living at at. Uh, Wheeler and what it was like being a homeless ten-year-old and taking the, bu- the the bus IPS picking her up there and taking her to school. Uh, they have moved from that program into a, an apartment, which is great, and they're doing well. But um, you know, life as a ten-year-old living in a homeless shelter, but still going to school. Your mom still insisting that you're doing your homework and all that. That's that's hard. That's happening right here in Indianapolis, and I'm passionate about it because we can solve it. And we've solved a lot bigger problems in this city than um, as they come. And I want focus on this problem and attention to it so we can fix it. 
You are listening to Leaders and Legends, presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. We are here today with Allison Melangdon, former CEO of the Super Bowl Committee and currently Senior Vice President of Holman Motorsports. We've come to the five questions portion of the broadcast, of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's the same five questions with everyone. And so uh, if you're ready, we're ready. I'm ready. What was your first job? I had the worst first job of anyone. It could be a contest. I washed sheets in a hospital laundry. That's bad. That's pretty bad. Which hospital? Um, I grew up in Auburn, Maine. And my, I had a little bit of an argument with my dad. Uh, I lo- my dad and I were so close. And we had a little teeny bit of an argument about my summer job. And he said, okay, I'll get you your summer job. And he came home the next day. And that was the job I had. And at the time, um, sanitation was a little different. And so, uh, you know, the sheets would come down after someone had a baby and had a surgery and, you know, things were uh, right all there. And, uh, (laughs) And then we had to wash the sheets. We had to bleach all the sheets, and then we had to iron all the sheets, and I did that for a whole summer. And then I said, I'm going to go to college, and I'm going to get all A's, and I'm going to do great things, (laughs) which was exactly what my father wanted me to learn from that job. He was a smart man. (laughs) What was your first concert? Tom Petty. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I was in high school in Portland, Maine. Remember famous favorite song? uh, Oh, my gosh. I used to love all his songs. Did you ever meet him? No. No, I didn't. I didn't meet him. Uh, I, I can't. I wouldn't say I had a favorite song. I just loved all. I just loved everything about him at the time. Now I can't say at this age I love everything about him, but I did at the time I was in high school. If you could recommend one book to someone to read, mm. business-wise, I would recommend The Advantage. Um, it is. It is a fabulous book on leadership, and. Um, the author is escaping me for just a second. It's right here in my office. Um, but the advantage, it talks about teamwork and clarity and how critical it is to have uh, your, your, the, the team that's working for you integrated and working together well. I love that book. If you could witness any event in history, which event would you choose? Mm-hmm. Be there as it happens. Uh, I would say... Um, the wall coming down in Germany, potentially. That was fascinating to me. Um, Berlin Wall in 89, I was trying to think what year it was, 88 or 89. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So symbolic of so many things. Had you seen the wall before it come down in your travels? No, I hadn't. And uh, I I remember being fascinated watching it on TV and the emotion that was Mm -hmm. coming out of people at the time and how... um, how free, freeing everyone looked, like the, the hope that they saw. Because um, you never thought it was going to come down. You never ever. Thought well, it was actually, and there's footage of when it was being built in the early '60s, where where parents were throwing their babies out of the window over the wall as it was being built to yeah. their relatives in West Berlin because they didn't want their kids to grow up under communism. Yeah. The last question is: If you could have dinner with anyone in the world, who would you choose? Probably Condoleezza Rice. Um, she came by the Super Bowl office one day and spent an afternoon with our staff and just talked about um, being your best every day, no matter what it is, and sort of circumstances and obstacles. And that glimpse into that window that I had of her was 
really intriguing and fascinating. And she's famous for saying her dream job is? NFL. She wants to work at the NFL, right? NFL commissioner. She wants yeah. to run the yeah, NFL. Yeah, she wants to run the NFL. <laughs> um, so I had enough of a exposure to her that uh, was very intriguing, and I'd love to be able to ask her a lot of questions. We're also here with Danielle Shockey, who is the CEO of the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Danielle, you get the last question. I'm going to have to come up with a good sixth question. It's mm-hmm. going to be part of your little... <laughs> <laughs> your stick, yeah. yeah. Um, right. No, one of our fun questions was, so you probably have met a lot of famous people pass your, you know, cross your paths at yeah. these events. Who's been one that you're like, oh, that person's just cool, like as a person. So kind of similar, but a little different. Okay, so this is going to shock you. Um, Lady Gaga. <laughs> because I was not a fan of hers. You know, the whole meat dress and all the... the craziness that was going on with her and then she came to the 100th running and she was um she rode with mario in the two-seater and so then the night before she 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 there was a person that was planning all our travel it was all a little bit high maintenance as you can imagine and then um (laughs) and then she came in in the pagoda Uh, she came in and we have a little office right there she came in in the morning hair in a ponytail jeans flip-flops no makeup and she was she came in the office and she's like, you know, you know, I'm here and I, I need a place to get dressed. She was the nicest, sweetest, kindest person ever. And then we spent, she was here the entire day. She signed every autograph. She um, was gracious and kind to every person she encountered. She was completely a low maintenance person, but you know, wears all the makeup, does all the hair, does all the stuff. But um, she was remarkable. So have you seen A Star is Born? I have. I went because of her. Uh, great and movie. Great yeah. movie. But um, I've never had such a turnaround on my thinking on a celebrity before. And I've met a lot of them. Um, I will tell you that she was remarkable. Well, it's it's a great way to end the podcast by saying every single word you just used to describe Lady Gaga are all the words that people use to describe you. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for joining us on Leaders and Legends, presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Thank you, Danielle, for joining today. And I hope you enjoyed it. And it really is a remarkable opportunity to talk to Allison. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.